Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, looking this morning at verses 13 through 20. Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Using the church Bible, 822. There's several around the room. Help yourself to one of those if you do not have your own. All right, well, this is God's Word, written Word of God. It has all of the authority of God, and so let's give it the attention, the attention that, it is, uh, that is due, the voice of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said... Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me. We need help. We need divine help right now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have together read your word and we know, as you tell us so, that it is living and active. Your word also tells us that your word always accomplishes everything that you determine it to do. And your word tells us that your word is to be preached, that the preacher is to be ready in season and out of season to take that scripture and correct and rebuke and teach with great patience, careful instruction. So, Lord, that's what we want to happen, and, uh, and I pray that you would cause it to happen by your spirit. Lord, we need to hear your voice over the voice of a mere man, so we pray that that would happen. And uh, for anything that I might say, Father, that would be uh, unhelpful, distracting, that you would cause it like chaff in the wind just to blow away and plant the living truth on our hearts and as a result conform us to the very image of your Son, which is your, your will and for the glory of Jesus. So, We pray, make that happen now. Amen. Well, I uh, I inherited my my last name from my father. He inherited it from his father, my grandfather. And uh, my grandfather actually altered it slightly by adding a value so it could be more pronounceable. But it's simply Vinter, like 
Winter, with a V. That's my last name, instead of a W. Now, what's been amusing to me, and sometimes a little annoying to me and, and my, my, my kids, uh, is that through the years, school teachers and others seem to have had trouble pronouncing it. They say, Vintner. They add that extra N after the T. And for the life of me, I just can't figure out why people do that. It doesn't make any sense to me, because no one ever mistakenly pronounces the word for the coldest season, saying, you know, it's been a very cold Vintner. Nobody ever, ever says that. According to Ancestry.com, there are 122 immigrant records for Vintner. None of them are related to me. So it matters how my name is pronounced. Now, the pronunciation of my name is a very small thing, and it's mostly an annoyance. But it illustrates that it matters how I'm represented. And if my name is called out in a room and is mispronounced, I would not be sure I would come forward uh, talking to me, you know. You know, in a much greater way, Jesus has given a way for him to be represented in the world. And it is through the church. And it matters to Jesus that the church represent him in the world faithfully that we, the local church, represent Jesus in the world faithfully. Now this morning we're continuing in our series on core values. We're doing this because the elders decided that it would be a good idea to communicate the kind of church that we are so that we, we protect and nurture these values. That's the whole point of this. In the previous two weeks, we've combined several values together, but we've talked about things that we value, like the sufficiency of God's word. We've talked about the importance as a value of Christ-exalting worship. We've talked about the importance of, of the love of God among us being expressed in fellowship, partnership, participation with one another, and then hospitality to the stranger. Well, today we are giving our attention to the value a biblical ecclesiology. <laughs> now, before your eyes glaze over, I want you to see how very important this is. It matters how we represent Jesus in the world. So what is ecclesiology? What's that word? The word is derived from a couple of Greek words, ecclesia, which in the New Testament ends up being translated as church. It's simply an assembly. The second word in that kind of compound, ecclesiology, is logia. That's a, a word meaning knowledge or words about something. So, so ecclesiology is effectively words about or teaching about the church. Fancy word. So there, if you haven't used that word before, you can tuck it away in your lexicon and bring that up every once in a while. That's the study of the church. It's knowledge about the local church. Now, again, as I said, because Jesus cares about how he is presented in the world, it is vitally important that we think rightly about the church. Now, I get it. We can have all kinds of ideas of the local church from experiences or from others' experiences. But if we're going to take the study seriously and truly hold to it as a core value, then for us, it must be Biblical. That's why we say biblical ecclesiology. So what we value as a church and what I'm hoping you will embrace as, as church family 
is the value of a biblical ecclesiology. A doctrine, a teaching about the church that is based on the Bible. And we value it together because it's about Jesus' own reputation in the world. So, as we unpack this this, uh, short little passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Matthew, I want us to organize our our thoughts under just two, two main headings. And they are this. First of all, Jesus builds the church. That's the first heading. Jesus builds the church. Secondly, Jesus delegates some authority to the church. Jesus delegates authority. Both of these are vital to a right understanding of a local church, a biblical ecclesiology. First of all, Jesus builds the church. Uh, This this lectern here, and uh, in fact, that communion table over there, and Aaron doesn't know I'm saying this, but Aaron made these things. Now, if you were ever to look at this lectern, you would see the beautiful burl wood and the inlay of, I'm not sure what that, is that Brazilian, African, I don't know, what is it? What's this dark one? I, okay, ebony. But it's beautiful. If you look at it, it's so intricate and, and lovely. You can't see that out there. I look at that every Sunday. It's just glorious. But, but what, this, what this represents is, is Aaron, in a sense, because Aaron likes fine, finished carpentry. And there are things that he has done to this and that table that you would probably, some of you wouldn't even recognize. Things that, that reflect what he thinks is important. And he works on those details, and, and he brought it here for us to use. And he was looking for no fanfare, so I'm sorry, Aaron, for calling you out, but it was, I needed the illustration, so there we go. But in a greater way, think about it. The church that Jesus builds must reflect his character, his values. It must reflect Jesus' priorities. And a biblical ecclesiology, a right understanding of the church, must make that as a priority for all of us. So let's get to the the words that are used in this text of Scripture. Verse 18. What is the church? What is the church? That word only shows up twice in the Gospels, and it's here in the Gospel of Matthew. Only twice. That word, and I mentioned this already, ecclesia in the original language, is essentially an assembly, an identifiable group that gathers together. We put the emphasis on gathering. We're we're together. But it's important that we understand that when we see the word in our Bibles, it's not just a random assembly. So it's not just any group of people when we see the word in our Bibles but it's rather referring to what Jesus said he would build, what Jesus said he would build. You can have all kinds of assemblies, uh, a Husker game. Well, if they get to actually go to the stadium, I'm not sure what happens, but that's an assembly. But it's not Jesus' assembly. It's not what he is building. What Jesus, and what Jesus builds is very much dependent on the foundation that is set. Now, look with me back in your Bibles, verse 16. To the question... Who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Simon Peter replied about Jesus asking him specifically, who do you say now? Okay, I get the talk, but what are you and the other disciples thinking about this? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona is simply son of John. 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here it is. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, just looking at that section, there's been a lot of dispute over what Jesus meant when he said, on this rock. And and it's a little bit of a play on words. The play on words is, you are Peter and on this rock. So in the original, this is where we get to understanding the play on the words. In the original, Peter, the word is Petra. And on this rock, Petros. So Peter means stone or little rock. And, and it's a nickname that Jesus gave to Simon. Like, it could be like Rocky, you know, hey, Rocky. He had a reason for it, but it, could, it was a nickname. It was a kind of a, uh, a name given. Simon was his given name by his parents, but Peter said, or, or Jesus said, I'll call you Peter. We could say Rocky, little rock. Petros, on this rock, I will build my church. Petros is the word for a large stone or a, or a kind of a rocky crag, something that would be the strength of a foundation. So it's a little bit different, but they're similar. Now, here's where the challenge comes in, because the, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this passage here and their own interpretation of it as a justification for Peter becoming the first bishop of Rome, what they call the Pope, the papacy, and everyone he passed it to after that. This is where they make this justification right here, that Jesus said, Peter, you're the rock that I'm going to build a church on. And from the Roman Catholic perspective, they say, well, Peter's going, I'm the rock. I'm, I'm, I'm the rock. I'm, I've got to take care of this thing. And I'll pass it along. Now, our Protestant sensibilities <laughs> look desperately for some other explanation. And I'm, I'm sure some of you have thought of this. So, the alternatives. What did Jesus mean? Did Jesus mean himself? Because we, we say, well, Jesus being the cornerstone, maybe, maybe Jesus was going, you're Peter, like, as if pointing, and on this rock. The grammar doesn't work out for that. So, we have to set that with a sign. So, did Jesus mean Peter is the rock or something else? Now, I have said in the past that perhaps what Jesus means is, is the thing that Peter said, like the, the confession that he made. But you have to kind of set that aside because it's really impossible to have a church with a confession and no people. There's no church if there's no people. What I take here is that Jesus does mean Peter but not for who Peter is, but for what Peter said. Jesus says, you are Peter, stone, and on this rock foundation, I will build my church. On the rock of Peter for, not for who he is, but for what he said. What, Pe what Peter said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. So we're going to unpack that statement. So we want to understand rightly the foundation of the church has to do with the individual who says something and the thing that they say. This is what Peter is an example of. So you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We'll unpack that. First of all, the word Christ, uh, the, uh, the Hebrew word is Messiah. That is the one who is promised uh, of God, promised by God in Genesis the Messiah is the seed of the woman, the perfect serving king that would bruise the head of the serpent. 
The Messiah is the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You can look in Hebrews if you want to look that up. Uh, The Messiah is the prophet like Moses from among his brothers, end of Deuteronomy. The Messiah is the forever king on the throne of David. The, the, The Messiah is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 who would be bruised for our iniquities and pierced for our transgressions. The Messiah, the Christ, is the anointed of God to be king forever. That's the Christ. And and Peter said, you are the Christ. But he added, the son of the living God. This is a special relationship that the Christ, Jesus, the Christ, has with with the Father. It's as John, the gospel writer, describes in his gospel, the word who was with God in the beginning and is God. And this confession that Peter makes, and as you and I, as believers in Jesus today, make that confession, we must include what Peter had not fully understood at the time, but which scripture had already revealed that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ, this Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now let me ask you this morning, have you made that confession? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God? Do you believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe that this morning? And if you have not considered that to this point in your life, I urge you, look to Jesus Because the only way that your sins will be forgiven is by looking to Christ who died for your sins and in your place. So, according to Jesus, the church that he builds is on the foundation of Peter and all who confess him as the Christ, the son of the living God. And only Jesus can build the church Because only he has the means to save. We can't build the church. Jesus saves. Jesus reveals himself as Savior and King. And in fact, God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who opens our hearts to even see him for who he is. Jesus builds the church. In his first letter, Peter, now to one of his epistles, so remember, he's the stone, He said this about we who confess. We who make the same confession. And he says this in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, that is Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, Jesus being that living stone who is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus says the foundation of the church is all those 
who confess that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, we get it. Not everyone truly gets who Jesus is. And that was true in Jesus' day. You see, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Verse 14. That is to say, what's the talk? What's the chatter? Well, some said, it's John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had been killed. He was acknowledged as a prophet. He had been killed and beheaded by Herod. They're saying, well, it's John the Baptist. He's back. Others said it was Jeremiah or Elijah or, or one of the prophets. And in all of the talk about Jesus, they were saying what they believed to be good things, some, in some respect affirming, but they were wrong, dead wrong. Jesus would not build his church on a false understanding of who he was. It mattered. It mattered that Peter and the rest of the disciples made a true confession. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the same is true today. It matters that disciples of Jesus make a true confession. Now, there are a lot of so-called churches that are built on all kinds of things. Things that might seem to be affirming of Jesus at some level, but they fall short of the truth. They present Jesus as culturally with it. Churches that are formed around the idea that, oh, whatever you're doing, culture, Jesus is all in on that, ignoring the word of God. Now, Jesus doesn't, Jesus, they'll tell you, Jesus loves marriages that aren't necessarily between a man and a woman. He loves, he's, he's cool with marriages that are same sex. That's what they tell you. But Jesus is not too concerned about adultery and pornography. Jesus is not too concerned. They will tell you that. Because Jesus is all about love, and he just wants to put his arms around you. That's, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. There are other churches that will affirm Jesus as a kind of a life coach. They guarantee, you know where I'm going with this, your best life now. And so they use Jesus as a kind of a, a mascot for, for personal improvement and, and, and affirmation and, and the means to find financial and relational and career success. Being the best you that you can be. Some churches are built on that foundation. Other churches are built on the foundation of Jesus as a social justice warrior. That Jesus is about solving the problems of poverty and, and racial injustice. Other churches set themselves up as, as has a foundation of Jesus as a moral reformer. That Jesus' mission in the world is, is all about stemming the tide of societal moral degradation killing the unborn, pornography, same-sex marriage, and you fill in the blank. Now, some of these, and I say some, some of these may be good causes. And it's good as a church not to be unnecessarily offensive in our culture. And we certainly should, as individual Christians, seek to do good in the world. But some of these things that I mentioned whether that's social justice or moral reform. They were not Jesus' primary mission. And any church that, built, that is built on these causes is not Jesus' church. Hopefully you're seeing why a biblical ecclesiology 
matters. We have to think rightly about the church. I love that. Keep, keep speaking that way. <laughs> I know I'm going in the right direction. Um, now that said, Jesus, the, the church that Jesus builds is not a passive assembly, okay? It's not passive. The visible church that Jesus builds functions in the world in a particular ways until he returns. And, and I want to point out three ways. You could find other ways. But the church in the world is not passive. Let me give you three, though. The church is the dwelling place of God. The church is the dwelling place of God. In the law, Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Moses, God gave the law through Moses. God established the tabernacle there. It was that movable structure that would later be replaced by a permanent temple that Solomon would build after David's uh, uh, preparation. That temple represented the fact that, that God dwelled among his people, the people that he called to himself, a people of his own possession. So, what happened at the temple, on behalf of the people, there would be priests who would meet with God there to bring sacrifices, and they would be entrusted with interpreting and applying God's law to the people. Now, fast forward through the centuries, there's a whole lot between, between then and the first century, but that temple would eventually be destroyed. Jesus predicted as much. The physical structure of the temple is gone. But God still dwells with his people. And he does that now when the church gathers. The Apostle Paul said this. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So church, we're, we're gathered in this room. This, this room is not a temple. It's not a sanctuary. I know we use the terms sometimes. It's just a room. But when the church gathers in this room or in any other room, God dwells here. That's huge. God is here. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the, the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's awesome. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when we gather here in the name of Jesus, when we declare and affirm that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, God dwells among us. Don't forget that. What kind of church do we want to be? A church that meets with God, right? Secondly, the church, another way is to look at the church, that we're not passive in the world. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. During Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus affirmed that his mission was to do, do what the Father had given him. Those works that Jesus did were for the purpose of revealing to the world that he had been sent by his Father. So Jesus said this, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's important information for the world. The works that Jesus did bear witness 
that the Father sent him into the world. But listen to what Jesus says. So Jesus is no longer here bodily. Here's what he said to his disciples just before he left them, John 20. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus sent his disciples out with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus then formed the church to continue that work of proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And here we are as the church, we bear that responsibility together. As the Apostle Paul says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. So you get the image, I think, in the same way that the human body is made up of different interconnected and interdependent parts, the church likewise is made up of different parts in this spiritual body that continues the work that Jesus did when he was on earth. The spiritual body, this is what we are that continues, that is to continue the work that Jesus did when he was on the earth. Now, we get it that, that in his own body, Jesus saved people by laying down his own life by going to the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sin. We needed that. Now, of course, the church does not do that. But we do continually point to the fact that Jesus has already done it, right? That's the gospel. The church proclaims that message. Jesus died for sinners and rose again. The body of Christ is for saying that. We say it to one another. And we say it to the world. And listen, a church that does not constantly think about, speak about, sing about, plan around, and focus on the gospel has forgotten its foundation. May we never forget our foundation. So what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church, I think, I would can affirm this. A church that proclaims the gospel is a church that is the body of Christ. One more way to think about the church, that we're not passive. The church is as the bride being prepared for marriage. Uh, several weeks ago, I had the honor of, uh, of officiating at my niece's wedding in Ohio. It was a really touching moment in the ceremony, just at the beginning. It was when the bride, she walked up the aisle. This is an outdoor setting, but her dad walking her up. And the groom saw her in her wedding gown. His name's Mikey. Mikey fell apart. He just fell apart at the sight of Jilly. That's my niece. And I know what happened. His heart was full. His anticipation could not be contained and it just flowed out in these tears of joy as his own bride was presented to him in all of her beauty. And we have the moment in pictures because I was standing behind him and I couldn't see it, but I saw the pictures later. It was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Jesus said, I will build my church. We've got to understand, brothers and sisters, that he's not emotionally detached from his creation of the church like it's some mere object with a useful function. That's not Jesus' heart towards the church. No, when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was saying, I am preparing a beautiful bride and I will cherish you. I think of an example of this. On the day that Saul, the persecutor of the church who eventually became Apostle Paul, but on the day that Saul was planning to destroy the Christians in Damascus, that day of his conversion, Jesus met him on the road. Jesus met him, knocked him down with the glory of his presence and asked him, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? Me. He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those disciples? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Which would be true. Jesus has a spiritual connection with the church as his bride that is pictured in the one flesh union in a marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus spiritually united with his bride, the church. Jesus cherishes us. It says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just listen to the language. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And because Jesus is preparing a holy bride, we, the church, proactively pursue holiness and purity and goodness together and understand that we do not do that to gain our status as Jesus' bride. But we do that rather because we are the bride of Christ and he cherishes us. So we therefore long to be what he is saying he is making us. We do it in anticipation of the day when the church will be presented to him. We collectively will be presented to him at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. Holy, spotless, without blemish. And keeping our eyes on that, we long for that purity today, don't we? The church is what Jesus builds. Let me just finish off. The second heading is, is more brief. Secondly, Jesus delegates authority. And this is important in our understanding of the local church. Jesus delegates authority. Now, I, I well remember how when our ch own children were little, little, and on the rare occasions that we got to go out, we'd get a babysitter. So I, this is obvious to some of you with little ones. You've been able to go out and leave your infants and toddlers because maybe your parents are nearby or you have left them in the capable hands of our church's own baby whisperer, Alyssa Long. The Longs get two mentions today. But you know how it works, right? Getting the sitter doesn't mean you give up all responsibility for your children. But while you're out, while you're away, you delegate some authority, right? You give them instructions for what the children can eat, if they can watch TV or not, what time they go to bed. And that authority has been delegated to them for a specific time and a limited purpose. Now understand this. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he maintained absolute authority over it. He's never given that up. Yet, in speaking with Peter and the rest of the disciples, he anticipated a time when he would no longer be present bodily. 
So what did he do? He delegated some authority to Peter and all the disciples and, by extension, the whole church. Jesus said this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, verse 19 of our text. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Admittedly, a challenging passage. What did Jesus mean by the keys of the kingdom? The keys of the kingdom is Jesus giving authority to the local church to bind and to loose. Keys, what do they do? They lock and they unlock. They close the gate. They bind. They open the gate. That is, they loose. So, how is the church to use this binding and loosing authority? How are these keys wielded? And here's where it connects to the very thing that Peter said. This goes back to what Jesus affirmed when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's connected. Jesus said, blessed are you. So just recapping what happened here. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. So the fact that Peter believed in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, was a divine gift. It was something God had done in Peter's heart. Again, this is God's doing. And so in light of what Peter said, and in light of what God had done to bring Peter to that place, Jesus said he would build his church on the foundation of those who confessed Jesus as the Christ. The keys then are for binding and loosing on matters related to Peter's confession. It's related to matters about Peter's confession and the confession of all who are the foundation of the church who could rightly confess that Jesus is the Christ. So, if the church's foundation is those people who rightly confess Jesus, then the keys of the kingdom, that delegated authority for the local church, must therefore be about ensuring that the church's corporate witness, the church's collective affirmation that Jesus is the Christ, be maintained and protected. The keys are for maintaining and protecting the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus said, use that authority to make sure we're landing on this truth. Chapter 18, you don't have to turn there. Here's an example of how Jesus' delegated authority works in the context of the local church. Chapter 18, 15 through 20. Jesus again speaks of the church. This is the second occasion where we see that word church in the Gospel of Matthew, and in fact, of all of the Gospels. I'll summarize what Jesus described. The situation here was someone who had sinned in such a way as to bring disrepute to the church. What's the solution? Jesus says, go tell your brother, the one who sinned, and win him back. What he means is seek his repentance. You're, you're trying to bring him back to fellowship. Now, Jesus says, if he doesn't listen and repent, then go get some witnesses. We've got to reinforce this deal. If he doesn't then repent on the witnesses, tell it to the church. And Jesus says, if, he, if telling it to the church doesn't bring this person to repentance, then Jesus says, treat him like an outsider. Why? Why? Why do that? Why treat this man like an outsider when he's unrepentant? Because his behavior didn't match his confession. 
So the conclusion is this, that if when confronted about sin, the person remains unrepentant, then that person is probably, I say probably, not a true believer. But only God makes that assessment. Jesus says, you're to wield these keys, you're to use these keys for the sake of removing from you peoples whose lives and confession don't match. Because if you allow them to be among you and say, there's a brother, the very behavior of that brother that brings disrepute to the church, you in effect affirm and approve of. Treating him like an outsider, that's an act of loosing. That's an act of releasing him from identification with the covenant community. That's church discipline. That's the use of the keys of the kingdom, church discipline. And the purpose of it is to protect the gospel witness of the local church. And a lack of repentance reveals a lack of genuine faith in Jesus. That's the church's responsibility. That's the use of discipline. Now, all of us are imperfect disciples. We, we mess up. We, we sin, either intentionally or unknowingly, but we sin. And we need each other we desperately need each other to help each other walk in obedience. And where sin is acknowledged, we turn away from it. And there's the grace of forgiveness. We talked about that in Sunday school. Grace. None of us are, are earning favor with God. And when we look at each other and see each other's faults, A sin committed isn't a permanent record. Because in as much as Jesus has at the cross borne our sin, we extend that same grace of forgiveness to those who sin among us. And if we love one another, we keep no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13. So church discipline. How many, uh, show of hands, how many here have been under church discipline? <laughs> My hand's up. Here's what I mean. This true story. Elders know. After an elder meeting, a brother told me that my words to another brother were harsh and unloving. I needed to make it right. And I did. Forgiveness was granted, and the matter ended there. That's the first stage of church discipline. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this should happen all the time. We don't just brush it aside. We see a brother going down a path say, hey, brother, you know, the way you said that was kind of like my words were unloving. Takes the threat of it, doesn't it? Now, if I sat there and said, you mind your own business, he'd get another brother and go, listen, he heard it too. And if I persisted in, in abusive words, Eventually, it would come to all of you. It should. Just one example. The church is responsible for using the delegated authority to bind and loose. And it's about the gospel witness. Because if we affirm in each other sinful behavior, we just say it's okay, then we're compromising our gospel witness. And we're showing the world that following Jesus is of no account in your life. Now, the church is not only responsible for a corrective discipline, a correction, but it's also, and this is the big thing that we do, 
This, is, this should be more than everything else. It's responsible for formative discipline, forming you, forming one another is as disciples of Jesus. So the church takes its responsibility seriously to affirm shepherds, pastors, elders, those called of God to teach and preach the word of God, to provide as God, as, as the word of God tells us, what are ordinary means of grace that God uses to grow disciples, hearing the word proclaimed. Jesus said, I give you, church, the keys of the kingdom. You have them. What are you going to do with them? Now, let me encourage you, members, when we have a church meeting, be present. Exercise the authority given to you by Jesus. Use the keys of the kingdom for decisions related to maintaining and protecting our gospel witness. And we do that in a very basic way by affirming those who rightly confess that Jesus is a Christ. That's why we vote on new members. We're saying, there's a disciple. That person belongs to Jesus. And we exercise that authority by affirming those that the Lord has set apart to serve as under-shepherds and, and work for the formative, the forming discipline of the church. You exercise the keys of the kingdom when you participate in the difficult decision to remove from among us those whose unrepentant behavior damages our collective witness. And for their own sake, to turn them back to repentance. Jesus builds the church and he delegates authority. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is what we're called to believe and to proclaim. That gospel, when it lands on the ears and the hearts of those that the Lord is saving, it takes hold and brings a genuine change of mind and behavior. The message, the good news about Jesus is the means by which Jesus builds his church. And the effect of it is, when we have right ecclesiology, it's not just theory. It's how we do things. When we think rightly about the local church, we will be a church that God will indeed dwell with. I want that. I think you do too. We're kind of church where the, the grip of sin can be broken. And we all need that. We're, we're the kind of church that can accomplish the mission that Jesus called us to, proclaiming Christ in the world. And we're the kind of church that will be purified and prepared to dwell with the Lord forever. And to carry out this delegated authority to protect and advance his kingdom in the world. That's biblical ecclesiology. And it matters because it matters to Jesus and it matters because the gospel matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. Thank you that you've called us into it. Thank you that you dwell here among us. Thank you that you keep us focused on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you strengthen us in confirming that gospel to one another and and using us, Lord, 
Oh, that you would use us to cause that message to land on the ears of those who are as yet unbelieving around us. We value this, Father, because we believe your word tells us to, that Jesus values it. So, Father, we pray, protect us from the schemes of Satan. We know that, uh, even as Jesus said, that the right confession, the right foundation of the church means that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Death no longer has hold of us. We have already been called into your marvelous light. So, Lord, keep us in the light. Keep us faithful and ever dependent upon you for the grace that you pour out on us daily, that Jesus himself may be glorified among us. Amen.